Hey everyone, and welcome to the Darkcast. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is DCI number 107. In this episode, Brian and I get to talk to Josh Sawyer of Obsidian Entertainment about Pillars of Eternity. Uh, now, Pillars of Eternity came out several months ago, but they announced the day of this recording that Pillars reached 500,000 units sold. So it's, it's big news for the franchise, and we get to talk about kind of the lead-up to the game as well as the future for both it and Obsidian. You can find more information about Pillars and Obsidian in the show notes to this episode on DarkStation.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now on with the show. Josh, thank you so much for joining us on the Darkcast. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Good, good. You've got some exciting news today. Do we? I, I thought so. <laughs> nope, That's, that was a, that was uh, a totally maybe, wrong lead-in question. No, I, that, that was a different podcast. No. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Pillars has reached 500,000 units sold. That is, uh, that is a feat. That is true. Yep, that's big news, and that's good. Very happy about it. That is awesome. Uh, well, before we get into talking about Pillars, uh, let's talk a little bit about who you are and, and what you do at Obsidian Entertainment. Cool. Uh, well, I have been at Obsidian for 10 years now. Uh, prior to that, I uh, worked at Midway for a little bit, and prior to that, I got my start in the industry at Black Isle Studios, uh, where I was the webmaster for the Planescape Torment website, and I worked on the Icewind Dale series. And at Obsidian, I've worked on Neverwinter Nights 2 and uh, a little bit on Alpha Protocol and then Fallout New Vegas. I was the director on Fallout New Vegas and I was the director on Pillars of Eternity and I'm still the director for the expansions. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's that's good to hear you worked on Alpha Protocol. I'm one of those weird people that really, really enjoyed that game. Thanks. I can't take much credit for it. I just worked on the close quarters combat system, but... (laughs) Nice. Um, so you've been there for, for about 10 years. So you've been there for most of Obsidian's life then, right? Yeah. Yeah. Obsidian was founded in 2003 and, uh, I was at Midway, uh, for a while. And then as soon as my obligations at Midway wrapped up, I came over to Obsidian in 2005. Okay. So how did you, how did you kind of get your start into the industry from, uh, you know, to, to get onto the Black Isle team? Uh, it was pure luck really. Um, I went to college, I grew up in Wisconsin and I went to college in Wisconsin and I was getting, I was finishing my degree in history and I was a bad student. I didn't really know what I was going to be doing once I graduated and I had taught myself web design while this was in the the mid to late nineties and I had taught myself web design and a friend of mine told me, Hey, there's a, an opening at Black Isle Studios uh, for a webmaster for some secret project. And at this time, Planescape Torment had not even been announced Hmm. and I didn't know what it was about, but I played Fallout. And so I'm like, oh, that sounds cool. And I had taught myself flash animation to make a website for a tattoo studio in Madison called Steve's Tattoo. And that turned out to be uh, the skill set that kind of got me the job, just knowing flash. Um, And I knew a lot about D&D and stuff like that, but that's how I got into the industry initially was to, um, in 1999, I moved to California right out of college, got a job as the webmaster for Planescape Torment. And then after about nine months, I managed to convince Fergus to give me a shot as a junior designer 
on Icewind Dale. <laughs> and Icewind Dale was a pretty crazy experience because there were no leads on the project and most of the staff were juniors. So we had lots of junior designers, junior programmers, and uh, we made it all just somehow. I, I, I don't understand really how we cooperated so well to make that game with no leads, but we did. Um, and then after that, I worked on uh, you know, other Black Isle games and, and then on to Midway and eventually Obsidian. Fantastic. So it, it sounds like if you're, if you're all juniors, then you're, you're all kind of leads in a way. Um, I guess so. Like we didn't have any, that was the thing is like, we didn't, it's not like we had any authority over each other. We just managed to, um, work everything out. Like we just say, Hey, you know, let's, uh, I was thinking of doing something in this area. Do you want to have something in your area that kind of feeds off of that? Like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Sounds good. Or like, Hey, I was thinking maybe in this area we could do the, you know, the encounter design more like this or they let me make all the magic items, like all the magic items for Icewind Dale I, I made and I wrote all the, the unique stuff for them. And that was just something I said, like, hey, I'd like to do this. And they were like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so, like, it's it's kind of crazy that it worked out that way. But um, that's how it went. And it turned out okay. Considering how high that, like, Icewind Dale kind of punched above its weight, um, especially given, like, you know, kind of Big Brothers, like Baldur's Gate and things like that. That's really kind of amazing to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I was very, very lucky for that to be my first project, um, and to to work with all those guys who were so. I mean, it's not like they were doormats, but they were really laid back about everything, and we kind of all did our own things, but we respected each other, and it turned out pretty well. Nice. So, just out of curiosity, was was kind of the purpose of the Icewind Dale game to be a proving ground for the more junior? Uh, game designers and programmers, or did it just by happenstance you didn't have any more of the senior people on that team? I think it was sort of a happenstance thing. Like people were rolling off of Planescape Torment because that was some of the development. If I recall correctly, there was a little bit of development overlap there. So we still had a lot of the senior folks on Planescape Torment. And so we needed people to work on Icewind Dale. And Icewind Dale was really initially the conception of it was let's make a pure dungeon crawler. So Baldur's Gate is much more story driven. Uh, there's a lot of exploration in it. Icewind Dale was really focused on dungeon delving, uh, making all six of your characters and really just murdering a ton of stuff. And, um, and so I think for that reason, they're like, well, we have people available that are coming off of Torment and this is what we got. And I shouldn't say we are all juniors. There were, there were some senior folks in there like John Diley. Um, but we didn't have any leads. So that was sort of the notable thing about it is that, um, yeah, junior, I was the most junior, but uh, junior to senior, we all kind of just managed to get along and get some cool stuff done. Maybe I'm forgetting all the fights that we had, but it seems like <laughs> it seems like it went pretty smoothly. That That is fantastic and, and good to hear. How How is that kind of carried forward is it is it generally a, a nice happy place where everyone gets along at, at obsidian or are there are there uh, brawls in the the big room with the big pillow couch thing uh, uh, <laughs> going uh, over design it's it's pretty chill overall um i would say that it's a very laid back it's obsidian is the most laid back place that i've worked um and again like people we get into heated discussions about things but they're they're always respectful like the other day I, I really like playing Obsidian is making uh, a game right now that's an open beta, which is Armored Warfare, which is kind of crazy because it's a, a tank MMO. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people would not think of Obsidian as being like the, the group to make that. But 
Uh, I actually have a lot of fun with it because I love playing Battlefield 1942, Operation Aberdeen, and maps like that. And so I go over and give a lot of feedback on that stuff. And um, people will walk by, like Anthony Davis, and he'll, he's one of the programmers on the team. And Anthony used to be a uh, – he was a tank driver um, uh, in the Army. And so he has a lot of opinions on things. Uh, and so he'll jump in and he'll, we'll get into these really heated uh, conversations or arguments or whatever. But, like, you know, they're always with the goal of, of making something as good as it can be. Um, and as long as that's always the goal, like people are always really respectful of each other. And, uh, we, we all know that we're trying to just make something that we, you know, we love and that we think people will enjoy playing. So it's a really nice environment to work in and to exchange ideas in and have those arguments about, because they're all, the goal is always the same. We're just trying to make something that we can be proud of and that, uh, people will really enjoy. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, um, how many people do you guys have on the uh, the Pillars of Eternity team at this point? Oh, geez, right now, um, I'm kind of guessing, but I'd say like somewhere between twenty and thirty, including QA. So it's it's not as tiny as some you know, like some indie games now you can make with a couple of one person or you know maybe like two or three or four people. Uh, for us, just due to the scope of the game, um, we've we. Usually we're around 20 people, I think, during development. Uh, with testing, just due to the size of the game, we need to have uh, people on staff for that. So somewhere between 20 and 30 right now. Okay. Very cool. Has that been the uh, kind of the, the scope of the team throughout development, or is that kind of gotten smaller as you, you go into the expansions? Oh, it's uh, it's gotten a little bit larger, actually, as we've gone on. Um the expansions, it's it's kind of strange. Like, you'd think, well, they're so much smaller, but we're also making them in a shorter period of time. Sure. So in an expansion, there still has to be a certain amount of gameplay space and time and a certain number of quests. Uh, when we make expansions, we don't want them to feel like DLC in the sense of, hey, I paid five bucks for this, and it gave me three hours of gameplay. We want them to feel more like uh, the Infinity Engine expansions. So that is a, a larger time investment. It's more quests, more characters, more dialogue, more items, more spells and abilities and things like that. So because of that, we, we tend to keep the team size uh, closer to what it was on the base game. Uh, some people did transfer off to go to other projects, but uh, it's largely similar because when someone gets, like, for example, the White March, uh, which we split into two because we want the whole thing to feel really sizable, uh, even if you get part one, that feels pretty, in my opinion, it feels like that's, you know, it's a lot of gameplay for what you're paying for it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important that the feeling of the Infinity Engine expansions uh, is we, that we stay true to that. Okay. Makes sense. How did it, how did it feel to kind of go back to that after all this time? I mean, I know that that was, that was kind of the point, especially with, um, with kind of putting it out there on Kickstarter with, you know, this is what you guys have done. You guys had a lot of experience with that. Um, but they, that, you know, that kind of first day and seeing what it's, it's kind of worked out to be, um, how did, how did that feel? Was that like just a complete time warp? Um, no, I mean, it, it was for the first, I would say for the first even year, it was crazy because we'd be, you know, obviously we were still perfecting some, some of the stuff that we were doing, but, uh, we had walk, you know, walking by an office and we were doing a lot of playing of the, of the old games, you know, just so we were familiar with the interface and the feeling of things and we'd walk by and it would be like, is that person playing an infinity engine game or are they playing our game? Um, 
And so that was kind of crazy to see, like, it had been so long since we had made a game like this that just seeing people's desktops and they're all playing this top-down, um, you know, six-party member, keyboard and mouse, PC-only uh, game, was uh, that was kind of a trip. Getting back into the design mode uh, wasn't too hard. Uh, thinking about full-party control again and all the things that come up when you do have six-party members and some of our, our companions and stuff like that, that took some getting used to because I've been working on, you know, games that have a single a single playable character, or if you have companions, they're AI controlled and stuff like that. So that take, did take some getting used to. The other thing too, is that um, we had internalized, and when I say we, I mean the designers that had sort of worked on those games back in the day. We had internalized a lot of knowledge uh, that the new generation of designers that were now working on these games had not internalized. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'd see them making, I'd say mistakes. Uh, that's maybe a little too harsh, but they'd be doing things where we'd say like, oh, no, no, no don't like, no, never do that. Um, <laughs> never, never do that. So for example, there's Take a- Take that at variant. Don't have- no. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't do that. Um, there's a thing that is, when you make an isometric game, just due to how the rendering works, you never want to have um, any sort of elevation change that goes down away from the camera. So for example, if you're standing on top of something and you walk down a flight of stairs that goes toward the top of the screen, uh, you never want to have that happen because it looks really weird, MC Escher, labyrinth, bizarre. Um, And you get into these weird situations where you have people that are traveling actually quite a long distance and they they look like they're moving in place or like they're not moving at all. Or you have someone standing on a cliff and there's someone on the ground way below that seems like they're the same size. So there are things like that where we had to teach people like, no, 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 no. When you design an isometric level, you have to avoid situations like this, or you can never, you can never do this sort of stuff. Um, you can't have a small room with a door at the bottom because what winds up happening is the whole room is concealed by the walls themselves. And so you actually can't see anything. And these are things that, you know, if you've never worked on a game like this, before, you would never think of it. But once you actually see it in the game, you go, oh crap, <laughs> that looks really weird. Um, so that did take a while, but um, everyone picked it up pretty quickly because the designers that were working on the game, even the junior ones, uh, they had played the Infinity Engine games before, most of them anyway. So they were they were at least keyed into the the type of experience we were going for. Was there anything that coming from like the older Infinity Engine games that when you started kind of sitting down and and saying this is what Pillars of Eternity is going to be? Uh, was there any one thing that was at the top of the board of like we are changing this no matter what? Um, I think the big thing is I I it was very important to me to make the interface uh, just easier to use for someone who is not uh, super steeped in the Infinity Engine control schemes. Uh, I mean. It's not like I necessarily designed things better in that time period anyway. Like we were working on a, we were working on games internally at Black Isle where we were still doing a lot of the very keyboard or the very uh, sort of mouse unfriendly types of um, uh, interfaces. And so things like our inventory and how it was laid out, how our abilities, how our ability bars and our action bars and character portraits were laid out. It was very important to me that we um, did things to make that not fatiguing for players, not confusing for players, um, pretty centralized so that all of the stuff was 
you know, like if you wanted to find things out, you could do it very quickly. And it took us a long time to kind of get it to the point where it was. And even after launching, we still like in this patch that we're about to put out, we're putting in a, um, a new, a better filtering system for stores uh, because we just realized like, oh, this is actually terrible. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so we're, you know, we're still trying to improve that stuff. But I think the, the biggest complaint that a lot of people who played the old games came back was, is like, I love the story. Love a lot of the mechanics, love the classic D&D feeling, but really wish that some stuff could be done about the inventory or, you know, stuff like that. So that was a big focus for us uh, from the beginning. Nice. Was that just, was that stuff that anybody had ever, like, thought about? Or was it just, it, it never seemed um, like it was such a big deal until it actually started going out in the wild? No, I would I would say that we had always thought about, like, and, and I know some people are not big fans of, of my approach to UI design, but... Uh, Icewind Dale 2, we already started addressing a lot of that stuff. Icewind Dale 2 was the last Infinity Engine game, uh, and it was it was uh, the one that I was the lead designer on. And we we changed the interface pretty dramatically from the Icewind, the original Icewind Dale and BG style to having a, a solid bar across the bottom. And that was largely to centralize everything, um, make everything more compact uh, and easier to access and stuff like that. And so we had already thought about and done some of those things. But then some of the other things, like having a stash, that was a new idea. Um, showing everyone's personal inventories on the same page, that was a new idea. I mean, not new to gaming, but like <laughs> new to this type of, of the Infinity Engine games. Uh, and so, yeah, so a lot of it was stuff that we had, we had already been thinking about back in the day. But some other stuff was like, you know, we would play it and we're like, whoa, okay, maybe we should change this too. Uh, so, yeah, it was a mix of things, old and new. Nice. Was there anything from the the younger designers that you know hadn't made a an Infinity Engine game before that their approach was different, and you were like, "That's actually a good idea. Let's go with that." Uh, I would say so. Uh, uh, Ryan Torres is one of the guys on our team who um, he really loves stealth games, and so Ryan was. Uh, he was really enthusiastic about finding ways to improve the stealth system. And uh, like he, he just, he is really into a lot of stealth games. And so we looked at um, some of the more traditional stealth games. Uh, obviously we didn't map a lot of the stuff over, but we'd look at things like Splinter Cell or even like newer ones like Dishonored. And also, um, oh geez, what's the great, is it Mark of the Ninja, the 2D one? The yeah, we looked at that too, and we we're we were trying to find ways to um, to incorporate at least some of those mechanics. We didn't want we knew we we weren't making a stealth game, but you know, sneaking around is kind of a D and D thing. It's definitely an Infinity Engine thing, and so we did try to find ways to improve that. Um, and Ryan was very excited about uh, you know trying to find a, find ways to push that, and hopefully in the future we can push it uh, a lot more. Like in the first expansion we made it so that you could have individual characters in and out of stealth, which was difficult in the base game for us to do. A lot of people really liked that change so that you could have your rogue um, sneak in, maybe a fight would start. Your other party members are not in stealth, but your rogue still is, and your rogue can still get off a backstab or sneak across the battlefield to you know, sucker punch someone. And so hopefully in the future, we can continue to make the system more interesting and add new features that uh, make it more fun for players to use. But Ryan... You know, he really was a champion of trying to push a lot of that stealth stuff. Cool. Very cool. So, um, 
before we get too much further into the discussion of Pillars, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, can you kind of lay out what Pillars of Eternity is? Pillars of Eternity is a crowdfunded game that uh, we launched around in uh, late 2012. And the whole goal of it was to make a game in the spirit of the Infinity Engine games, Icewind Dale, Baldur's Gate, and Planescape Torment. And the focus for us was to try to recreate the feeling of having a big, beautiful world to explore, 2D isometric world, um, having a real-time with pause combat system, tactical combat where you have full control over all your party members. So if you're in the middle of a fight, you can pause, issue commands to everyone, and then unpause and see them play out. Uh, and then the third most important thing was uh, to have a very rich and reactive story to go through. Um, Obsidian really focuses on storytelling and a lot of reaction to the choices that you make. So being able to make the character you want, express the personality of that character, and see the story change and people's reactions to you change based on the choices you make was a big focus for us. Uh, very important for Obsidian and also for uh, an Infinity Engine uh, game successor. And yeah, so we made it for uh, uh, Windows, uh, Mac, and Linux, and it came out in March of this year, and we've been working on the expansion called the White March, which we've been releasing in two parts. The first part came out, when did that come out? Jeez, I can't remember. I thought it was, uh, was it August, September? Yeah, sounds about, I think think it was late August, late August. Yeah, it is August. (laughs) So yeah, it came out in late August, and then um, the second part we're working on right now, so Good times. Very good times. Uh, do you have any sort of projected timeline for when uh, you're hoping part two comes out? Winter. <laughs> Here it's coming. Yeah. That's it. Winter. <laughs> nice. But not, not necessarily our winter. Maybe in-game winter. You never know. Yeah. Oh, no. It's a northern, northern hemisphere winter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. Uh, now you, you mentioned uh, kind of first off that it's a it's a crowdfunded game, and you guys um, at E3 the uh, the AMD show that they did, uh, one of the Obsidian team was up there to I think announce actually the White March, and it mentioned that you guys basically made the game on the funds that you raised in Kickstarter, which a lot of times that's not the case. That's you know kind of a proving ground to to get more investors in and stuff like that. How did how did you go about making the game on in game making terms not a whole lot of money? Well, uh, we did go a little over budget, I should say, but <laughs> um, but we stayed we stayed fairly close. We stayed reasonably close, and a big part of that is one, it's familiarity. The fact that um, you know the owners of Obsidian were all at Black Isle. So we are all familiar with. Well, I wasn't. I was not. I am not an owner of Obsidian, but they, they, and I were all familiar with kind of what it takes to make games like this in terms of resources. Hmm. And uh, during the Kickstarter campaign, there was some guesswork. Like, so for example, one of our stretch goals was for a big city, real big city, like a Baldur's Gate type city. And I don't remember what the. It was like five hundred thousand. I can't remember what the actual value or two hundred fifty. And I said to Fergus at the time, because a lot of these stretch goals we had to come up with very quickly. We did not expect the crowdfunding to be as successful as it was, especially not that quickly. So we didn't have stretch goals really lined up. We had mm-hmm. talked about them, but we didn't have them lined up. So he's like, oh, big city, uh, $250,000. And I said to Fergus, Ferg, is that actually how much that costs? I mean, 
it's a lot of maps and it's a lot of quests and it's a lot of dialogues and is that right and uh, it sounds about right so a lot of it was just educated guesses based on our previous experience and then we just we had a very uh sort of tight or we tried to have as tight as we could a development cycle where we we try to be really serious about budgeting we try to be really serious about tracking progress um and cutting things and so there were certain things that we cut relatively early which is always the best time to cut them there were other things that we cut toward the middle of development and we cut we didn't really cut very much toward the end we cut a few maps toward the very end of development but cutting earlier rather than later actually makes it a lot um less painful because you you haven't invested a lot in stuff at that point in time so uh, and then, and then late, late in development, uh, as it was approaching the holiday season, we realized, you know what, we could release this at Christmas, but we don't want to. And it's just not ready. Like there's a lot more stuff we can do. There's a lot of things that we can improve that we know should be improved. And so then at that point we're like, okay, it's going to cost us more money than we expected. And so we kept it and we kept working on it. We had our backer beta. People gave a ton of great feedback in our backer beta. And we tried to improve everything we could in that. And uh, yeah, and that's how it wound up. Like we, we went a little over budget, but we all felt that it was much more important to address the problems that we knew were in the game, that our backers knew were in the game, and come out with a little later and a little over budget rather than just kind of push it out the door. No, I mean, that was the whole point is, you know, at Obsidian, we, you know, we've, we've put out games before that that were, you know, they certainly felt rushed and people criticized us for it. And it's not always completely up to us when a game comes out. This was a case where it's completely up to us when the game comes out. So there wasn't really a good excuse for us to not keep it internal and keep on keep on working on it. Were, were there any particular kinds of restraints that you had to kind of put on yourself as far as, you know, this being a, a game that you were wholly responsible for? You don't have a, a publisher um, kind of looming over you. So I, my, uh, to me, it would think that you would want to just go hog wild and, and do everything possible. But that doesn't, that also seems like not the smart thing to do. So were, was there ever anything that you really wanted to get in the game, but you were like, you know what, that's just way too much man hours, way too many dollars to sink into that, that you know may not enhance the game that much? Anything? Oh, like that? sure. Um, there are lots of like features and abilities where, you know, for example, party AI. Party AI is something that we wound up putting in, in the first expansion, uh, a lot of people really missed it and they wanted it, but it was a lot of work. And we had a lot of, we had a lot of difficulties for a long time with AI and it, until we stabilized it, it didn't seem like it was going to be a good foundation for making party AI. And that was something a lot of people were like, God, we really, really want this. It would be so nice to have it. Um, people would really enjoy using it. And I know a lot of people were you know annoyed that it wasn't in the base game, but it was also something that I just knew and, and programming knew uh, we just didn't have time for. Uh, there are certainly, there are, there are areas that we cut that we really, that we thought were really spectacular that we couldn't put in. Um, and there are tons of abilities like wacky abilities. Uh, so one of them is coming back in the expansion, which is really good. So there's a, there's a spell called form of the helpless beast that uh, turns you into, and originally it turned you into a duck. And, um <laughs> And just classic polymorph, you know, just fun to turn things into ducks. And so now, uh, and, and the, like there were problems with the duck, there were problems with polymorphing people, there were problems with all sorts of things. And so now for part two of the White March, Form of the Helpless Beast is making a comeback, but now it's turning you into a pig. So um, 
sometimes we just have to shelve these things. Like, re- you know, we're like, there's, oh, there's a pig right now that has just thrown down his headphones. Yeah. And it's like just in disgust. Like, I am not a helpless animal. <laughs> so there are things like that that we, you know, it's like they're, you know, we think they're really cool. We really like to have them in, but there's just no time to do them. And so uh, we just had to be careful about it. And the same applies with areas. From the beginning, we knew that we had to make a very big game, but the danger in over scoping is that we just wind up, you know, backing ourselves into a corner. And, uh, you know, I worked on Fallout New Vegas, which is a huge game that we made in 18 months, which is very fast. Hmm. And uh, so we had had experience on how to, how to structure the development of your areas and your quests to ensure that the core, the crit path, the stuff you really, really need uh, will get done and get done well. And you'll also have a nice amount of side content. And then you realize that you're just cutting, ultimately you're just cutting side content for the most part. And then you're like, well, that's a cool quest, but it's not critical. It's not vital. Maybe we can reuse that idea somewhere else. And it's just about kind of how you structure your development cycle to make sure that everything gets done on time. But you always wind up cutting something. So, Sure, sure. Um, how, how much had you guys actually planned for the game uh, when you launched the Kickstarter was it just kind of a, a general idea of, you know, you want to make a game like you used to, or did you actually have some hardcore design documents and, and stuff like that? Virtually nothing. Like, okay. um, most of the stuff that people saw in our updates had been written within the day prior to it going up. <laughs> so, well, from our perspective, we were like, well, who even know? I mean, we, we've said this before in, like, the documentary and a few other places, but we... You know, I was not, you know, super confident that we were going to actually make our funding goal before we launched. Um, a lot of people here thought it was like 50-50. You know, we're like, oh, it could. We'll see. Maybe, maybe not. Um, and so for a lot of us, we're like, well, you know, we'll see how it goes. And, and maybe we'll sort of like limp in and, you know, and then we can, you know, develop this stuff out. And so it was really just the premise, like, I think Adam Brennicke had an idea for like, what if it was, you know, souls or reincarnation were a big part of the world. And I'm like, sure. Sounds good. Um, and then just made up a few like races and things like, or maybe those races weren't even made up. I can't remember, but um, you know, like we had decided like, yeah, humans, elves, dwarves, like a lot of people, you know, some people hate elves and dwarves, but for this type of game, it seems like it's kind of important to still have them for a lot of people. And they're like, do we need gnomes, halflings or orcs? No, we don't need those. Okay. Let's make up a couple of races that kind of, you know, fill the big, the big guy and the little guy roles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then some classes were like, ah, core four fighter, wizard, priest, rogue. And then now well, let's add a fifth one ranger. A lot of people like rangers. That was it. So, <laughs> and then, and then pretty much whatever you saw in the launch Kickstarter. And then from that point on, because it picked up momentum so quickly, uh, we were, I was making up lore and mechanics, um, you know, as I was going along and Rob Nestler and Paulina Christova were making, uh, you know, uh, concept art, you know, just day in, day out to go in with our updates. Mm-hmm. So, for example, like the Endless Paths of Odd Nua, which wound up being our mega dungeon, um, Rob Nestler had to draw out new levels of that almost every day because it was getting it was we were hitting our stretch goals so quickly. Um, and the the body, like the huge statue that wound up being in it in the drawing, that's just something that Rob came up with, like in a fevered fit. I don't like no one asked him to do that. He just put it in there and I'm like, whoa, that's cool. What's that about? And he's like, I don't know, just some crazy statue. Um, and then when we actually went to make the Endless Paths of Adnua, that actually became a fundamental uh, part of 
the dungeon and like the reason why the dungeon was created to house that huge uh, statue. So a lot of it was just made up as we went along. Some of it, you know, we just kind of threw stuff out there and then we decided to run with it. And uh, yeah, we were just lucky, I guess, that it turned out the way it did. <laughs> People seemed to like it. Yeah, it, it actually kind of sounds like a and and in some ways a spiritual successor to the development of Icewind Dale. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think so, except that at the time when we launched the Kickstarter, there were so few people actually on it. Um, I was really doing all the lore and all the system design and everything um, myself. And Paulina and, uh, and Rob were the only two artists we had available. So it was, we, ha- we had to just really turn that. And then, uh, Fergus and Adam Branicky were really pushing all of the Kickstarter, like the updates and talking to fans and stuff like that. So it was like Icewind Dale in that everyone was kind of just doing their own thing, but uh, right. with even smaller initial group. Like obviously once we entered development, it got a lot bigger, but initially we just, we didn't, we didn't think we were going to have to, well, we weren't expecting to be that successful. And because of that, we weren't prepared to ge- ha- need to generate so much lore and so much art uh, to kind of keep up with the, the interest that was being generated. Sure. Sure. Was there was there anything that you had to go back and change of you know ideas that you had during the Kickstarter and then as you started making it going you know what that's a terrible idea or that doesn't make any sense or you know, the only like one that. the only one that uh, <laughs> this is very painful and every once in a while I, I find uh, elements of it um, so I'm really big into I like languages a lot and studying languages and I like constructed languages. And during the Kickstarter campaign, I I had to conceive of like, well, what are the constructed languages for these different cultures? Because we're making names and place names and things like that. And so we had Valian, which was sort of like the quasi-Italian, quasi-Renaissance Italian. And their language is based on Italian and French and Occitan and a little bit of Catalan. And that's like fairly straightforward. And then uh, Adirin, which is bearer, Eldadirin, which is based on Old English and Icelandic and stuff like that. Again, not super crazy. And then um, we had uh, Glanfothan, and Glanfothan was based on Irish, which is really crazy. Like the the orthography, like how the language is written and how it sounds looks really strange to most people. And what happened is as development went on and I was naming things using kind of Irish style spelling and orthography, people were like, can I swear? Like, I fucking hate this name. Like, I hate this name. I don't know how to say it. I get mad every time I see this word. Um, Fergus hated it. Designers. I have that reaction every time I see Ian Griffith's name. <laughs> every single time. I'm like, that does not say Griffith in any language. And my wife has to constantly tell me that it's Welsh. So people were, people were getting all bent out of shape. And finally I said, okay, 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 fine. And so I switched it over to be based on Cornish, which is a lot more straightforward. It still has a few weird things in it. Um, but what that meant is I had already written lots of place names uh, and personal names and things like that using this other system. And so every once in a while I find that there's like a piece of lore that went out or the name of a character or something that didn't switch over. And I'm like, ah, crap. I never changed that. And so one, it both looks strange. And uh, two, it's like just kind of it doesn't match everything else. So, but I did, we did have to change that. There wasn't a whole lot else of stuff that we did during the Kickstarter that we had to change. Um, There was stuff that we developed, that we developed that we changed. For example, um, our skill system changed a number of times in terms of number of skills and how skills progressed. 
Uh, that went through a few iterations, um, a lot of it based on backer feedback. Uh, we also initially had a durability system that lasted about five seconds. And then like a ton of people on our forums were like, please don't do that. And so we got rid of that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we changed or tuned based on backer feedback. But somehow, magically, amazingly, most of the stuff that we conceived during the Kickstarter process, we pretty much put in as as designed. Okay. Nice. Nice. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about you know some of the stuff that you guys have coming out. Obviously, you have the the White March two, or yep. part two, which is which you're currently working on. What uh, kind of what space does that fill in uh, in the world of? Uh, Pillars of Eternity. Uh, so the second part of the White March is a continuation of the... It's not... So there's a complete story within the White March Part 1. It's about sort of getting into Durgan's Battery and igniting the White Forge. And that's its own little story. But then, based on things that you do in Part 1, uh, Part 2 is sort of saying, meanwhile, <laughs> now some other stuff is happening. Okay. And so it's consequences of that and sort of like learning more mysteries about, uh, you know, things that went on or are going on in that area. And, uh, yeah, and we're raising the level cap again. Uh, Got to keep up in the challenges. And we're trying to add a lot of new features uh, and uh, spells and abilities and things like that. But really, it should sort of be the capstone to the whole base Pillars of Eternity experience. We really wanted the White March to feel like it's an extension of the main game, um, not something that you have to start over or, um, you know, like it's its own separate side thing that you have to play separately from the main game. Sure. So, you know, whether you're sort of near the end of the game or you're in the middle of the game or you just started or something, you should be able to go in and do that stuff, go back to the sort of main game areas, play that, uh, and uh, yeah, so it should pe- it should feel you are going to a separate location, but uh, we want it to feel very well integrated. So hopefully by the time the whole thing is done, uh, you'll have this really cool experience where you have a lot more exploration opportunities, lots of cool new items, abilities, and stuff like that. Very cool. Very cool. Now you've also got some uh, some ebooks coming up as well that uh, different team members are are writing. Can you talk a little bit about what those are? Yeah, so we have a number of folks on the team who have written short stories. Uh, not all of them, but at least a few of them are are backstories for companions that we have. So mm. there's a, there's one for Sagani. There's one uh, Sagani is our ranger companion. There's one for Adair, who is uh, our fighter companion, and there's one for Atloth, who is our wizard companion. And then there's a fourth short story that isn't related to any of the companions, but uh, each of them. Uh, are pretty cool. They're written by different authors uh, who work at Obsidian, and they're all illustrated. Uh, they have a little cool illustration at the beginning. And, uh, yeah, they're pretty neat. Uh, the first one by Carrie Patel, which I think is Rat, Rat Catcher, uh, was just released, and we have some more coming up in the near future. So should be cool. Awesome. Very cool. Um, are You said they're all kind of back. Are all of them backstories, or the the fourth one is that... The fourth one is is just sort of uh, another story set in the Deerwood. So it's not directly related to, you know, the events of Pillars of Eternity. It's more just like cool, you know, like just a short story in the same setting. Sure, sure. Now let's talk about the uh, the tabletop game you guys are are working on as well, uh, Lords of the Eastern Reach. Sure. Yeah, that's actually being done by Zero Radius Games. Okay. Um, 
one of the members of Zero, Zero Radius Games, sorry, is uh, Scott Everts. And Scott uh, works at Obsidian. He worked at Black Isle. He's, man, he worked on, I think he worked on all the Infinity Engine games. Uh, he also worked on Fallout 1 and Fallout 2. I think he laid out like every map in Fallout 1 or something crazy like that. So he's been around for quite a long time. He's a really cool guy. He knows tons about board games. Um, so he and Chris Taylor, uh, Chris Taylor was uh, uh, very instrumental in making Fallout. Um, but they're working on Lords of the Eastern Reach. And it's very cool. It um, it ties into, you know, like a, lo- a lot of the lore and the characters from the Pillars of Eternity game. And uh, I got a chance to play test it and give feedback to make sure, you know, they sort of like synced up as much as possible. So, for example, I'd say like, well, like, yeah, you could have, you know, you could have uh, a monk do the ability like this, but it would kind of fit their, like the feeling of, of them if, if the mechanic worked more like this. It would feel more like monks feel in the game. So they took and incorporated a lot of that feedback, and the art looks really cool. And, uh, yeah, it should be uh, – a lot of people have expressed interest in it. The Kickstarter did great. So, um, yeah, it's looking good. Hope, hope people really enjoy it. Fantastic. Uh, do you know when that's hopefully going to be making its oh, way out the door? That would be a better question for Scotty or, or, uh, <laughs> okay. or Chris. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know that. Not in the loop. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I, I assume it's something that you guys are kind of continually giving feedback on and adjusting to kind of keep it in line with, uh, the rest of the universe. Yeah. Yeah. We, we look at it and give feedback. Like for example, this morning I just wrote like a little lore blurb for the back of the box to kind of talking about the world. And, um, also when we made, uh, when we started working on the expansions, we worked with those guys to incorporate the new companions. So Zawa and the devil of Karak are the two companions from, uh, the first part of the expansion. So those are coming in, and then we have our final companion, who's not announced yet, but um, she's coming in part two, and that'll also be incorporated into into the board game. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So once the once once part two is done, um, what's what's kind of next for for pillars? Where where does it go from here? I mean, you guys obviously you hit you hit five hundred thousand. I imagine that number is still, still growing as people kind of, you know, see what a success the, the, that it's today? been. Um, where, where are you guys going with it? Well, we want to, you know, we want to continue to look at other ways. I mean, one of the nice things about Pillars of Eternity, I mean, there are a lot of nice things, but one of the, the best things is that it's our, it's ours, like it belongs to Obsidian. So oh, Absolutely. And, and that's, especially when you look through Obsidian's history, you guys have done such great work with other people's stuff. Thank you. That it's got to be kind of kind of cool to have like this mark uh, it's something to kind of build on of your own. Yeah, it's uh I mean that's what's great about it. Like we we just made this, you know, we're making this I mean we're not directly making it, but we're, you know, we're making this card game. Uh we can write short stories and release them. Um you know, if we want to make, you know, something that I think a lot of people would like to do is uh some people would really like a super hardcore uh like tactical, very very tactical like turn-based game. If we want to do that, we could do that. Um, we can move the time setting or like we can do kind of whatever we want with it, uh, make graphic novels. Um, so we're looking at different ways that we can, you know, like have more cool things within within the setting, uh, things that we're excited about and things that we think, you know, fans would really enjoy. And, you know, we're talking about ideas that we would have for doing a sequel. Um, and, uh, you know, because... We really liked working on Pillars, and but there was a lot of stuff where we're like, ah, I really wish we could have done this differently, or ah, uh, you know, fans, you know, they a lot of fans have criticized this, and you know, they're right. We should really try to 
you know, and it's not something that we could really fix within, you know, just working on the base game anymore, but maybe in a sequel we could revise it and fix it. So there's a lot of stuff that we've, you know, talked about that we'd like to do if we do a sequel. Um, we'd all really like to do it. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're just, we're sort of reveling in the fact that we can do whatever we want with it and, uh, and just trying to find things that we, we think are good for it, that we will like doing and that we think people will be excited about. Nice. Now, uh, as Brian mentioned, you guys have worked on a lot of, uh, other properties for various different publishers and, and whatnot. And when you look back on the, you know, kind of what, I guess, 12 year existence of Obsidian, there've been some, some rocky patches. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I actually was at the armored warfare event, uh, a cool. week ago. And so it was really kind of interesting to hear Fergus talking just how bright the, the future kind of seems for Obsidian being able to work on your own stuff and just the, the changes that are made. How, how does it feel kind of looking at the, the future at where Obsidian is now versus where it has been at, at various points in the past? It feels a lot better. I think, I think because, you know, it's, it's, it's strange thinking about Obsidian as an independent developer because now we're, we're quite big. Like, you know, we're, if we're not at 200 employees, we're very close. Um, Whereas at our lowest, I think we were at maybe 70, 75. So we've really had some ups and downs. And I mean, 75 was not in the early part of the business. That was like, you know, right in the middle. Um, So we've definitely had a lot of ups and downs. And it's really rough for a lot of developers. And it's been, I I can't complain too much, though, because I, you know, I know that especially within the past, like, five years, there have been huge studios that have collapsed um, and sort of broken apart. And where it's not just a layoff, it's like the whole place shuts down. So from that perspective, I think in some ways we've been, we've survived, which is nice. Um, but it certainly is a nice feeling to look at the success of the games we've come out with in the past few years, uh, feel good about them, uh, feel like we have more kind of control over what we're working on, um, the terms that the terms that we work on things. Um, that's the other thing, that, that being, being more stable um, means that we have more leverage when we sort of uh, negotiate for our contracts. I know Fergus, you know, I would not want to do Fergus's job. I can just say that. Like he's, he's got a lot, he's got a lot to do and it's a lot of really hard and grueling work. Um, Negotiating contracts, please never have me in that position. Like I don't. Um, So it's especially when you're backed into a corner where, you know, you've got a huge amount of employees that are, you know, relying on you to make payroll and you have a publisher that has a lot more time than you do to sort of wait you out on a contract. So it's, uh, it's nice to be in this position. Um, you know, I'm always going to be wary because I'm a game developer, (laughs) which sounds sad, but like, that's the truth of it is I'm always going to be a little, a little wary. Um, but it does feel nice to have more control over our destiny. Fantastic. Fantastic. Is there, given that, um, I guess that obsidian is in the past kind of had a, a little bit of a bad rap for, you know, some buggy games. Is there anything that you want to like set the record straight on? Well, well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we're, I mean, we put the bugs in the game, so we're, we're responsible for them, but it's a, it's a whole system of stuff like testing. If, if we don't have enough testers or enough time to test, or they're focusing on testing the wrong things, no one's going to catch anything. Um, I feel like, I can only apologize so much for bugs because part of the cost of making games that have a ton of content 
and a lot of variable ways to play it and a lot of variable ways to build your party and do things and sneak and talk and people react to you, um, they're just more complex. They just, they, they can break in more ways. Uh, there's more stuff that can go wrong. And uh, there's always going to be more bugs in a game that is made with that focus. Uh, but it's still our responsibility and we have to try to find as much as many of the bugs as we can and fix as many of the bugs as we can. Um, so for something like Pillars, you know, that's it's all on us really because we kind of set the terms of how that stuff was developed and tested. I do think that, you know, there's a lot of games that people can give us, you know, justifiably a bad rap for. Um, Dungeon Siege 3, I don't think. I didn't work on Dungeon Siege 3, so I can't take any, <laughs> any credit for it at all. Whether you like or don't like Dungeon Siege 3, that was a solid game. Like, that was not a buggy game. It was really, really tight, and the team really deserves a lot of credit for that. That was our tech that we made. That was the Onyx engine. Obsidian made that. Oh, wow. um, and, and yeah, that was a solid game. And I think that people should give that team and Obsidian like more credit for making that a really solid title. Whether you like it or not, it was not a buggy game. <laughs> and uh, for pillars and stuff like that, you know, it was a big RPG. There were bugs in it. There were more bugs than we wanted to be in it. That's something that we keep working on. Um, you know, we're, we have another patch in beta and uh, a lot of big, big bug fixes in there. But uh, it's something we keep working on. We don't we don't like being known for making buggy games. Sure. Um, but we also do know that we, we make games that by their very nature tend to have more bugs. So it's something we're working on, always working on. Um, talking to... Um... Charles Staples uh, last week he was talking about oh, yeah, one, of the most ex- uh, one of the most exciting things about Armored Warfare is the fact that it's a live game so you're you're always updating it yeah um, and for you know a lot of products you kind of finish it and you're you're done you don't release a ton of um, updates for it especially if you know if it doesn't perform well enough then you're not going to be paid by the publisher to do that um, is, is that kind of part I guess thinking of even you know technically finished products like pillars of the Etern- pillars of eternity thinking of it as a kind of ongoing product for you guys anyway yeah i believe Does that change I believe, how you way you work on it yeah i believe so i mean but by the same token like on fall new vegas after we finished working on it <clears throat> about a year later i made a mod for it to fix more bugs and to sort of um you know fix stuff that i uh, there was just no way technically or you know logistically for me to fix that stuff uh for the base game to actually make it into a patch. But I think all of us, like when we look at our games, if we see things that either we think are wrong or our fans really think are wrong, we want to be able to fix that stuff if we can. Um, There are a variety of things, like maybe it's the platform that it's on. It's harder to patch things on consoles. It's expensive to patch things on consoles. Um, Maybe it's because the publisher doesn't want to release the patch for whatever reason, Um, which I've heard not necessarily on games I've worked on, but I've, I've worked, I have worked with people who have said that they've worked on games where they made a patch and the publisher just said, nah, which is <laughs> insane, but like that happens. Wow. So, wow. So with pillars again, because, because we know we have a reputation for, you know, buggy stuff and because it is our product and it's fully our responsibility, we're just going to keep patching stuff. And speaking for myself, I mean, uh, you know, making sure that people are having fun with the game, no matter kind of what their kind of options are, is always important to me. Um, a, lot, a lot of fans know that I, I really believe that balance is very important. I don't mean perfect balance, but I mean, like, if you make a rogue, it should be fun to play a rogue. And if, if in the game that ships, there's something about playing a rogue that just really fundamentally stinks, 
we should try to fix that and make that better. That's also part of balancing and tuning. And so uh, that's an ongoing thing. Like we want to keep improving um, how classes feel, how the UI feels, like the UI improvements that we put in. Um, because they're little things, but they add up over time. And uh, the whole product just feels better for it. And then also we can carry that stuff over. Like if we make a sequel, all those improvements and fixes that we've made, that goes straight on. But again, this is it's our technology base. I mean, obviously it's Unity, but we've made the fixes. But it isn't like a lot of work for higher things that we've done in the past where we work on something, it ships. We're not even working on that property anymore. We're not working with that tech anymore. So eh, whether the publisher wants it or not, it's uh, like it, it just doesn't work out. But this is a case where it's very much in our interest to keep updating the game and uh, and trying to make it feel better and better with every iteration. Sure, sure. All right, well, Brian, do you have any more questions before we uh, jump into the end game? No, no, I think we're good for the uh, the end game. If you're all set, I'm good to go. Take it away. All right. So uh, we like to end our interviews uh, with a little bit of a questionnaire. Um, it's more personally geared towards you. Uh, and not necessarily Obsidian, although if you think you can answer for the entire company with one of these, please <laughs> feel free and fill us in. Um, but we'll go ahead and we'll get right to it. Um, first question, who is your favorite video game protagonist? Whew, that's a hard question. I would The first thing that comes to mind, I might not stick with this answer, but it's the first one that comes to mind, is um, it's Ben from Full Throttle. It's uh, full throttle. There are things about that as a game that bug the crap out of me, honestly. I'm just going to say that. I haven't met Tim Schafer, but maybe now I will, and he'll get really angry. But but Ben, um, I just thought he was a really cool, like even now going back and looking at it, like the way that all of his his whole personality was conveyed, um, a lot of it was really subtle, which I thought, and I still think is like really cool the way that he was, that was communicated. His kind of like, um, on, you know, his romance, as it was with Mo, was handled in a really cool way in the story, uh, in, in a way that I think, like, a lot of romances don't have a lot of subtlety to them. Uh, and so I thought that that was handled really well. And it's just a cool, cool character, cool story. Um, so, yeah, that's the one that just popped into my head. I'll stick with it. Excellent. Hey, that works. I think that's the first uh, first double find selection we've had in, in one of these, nice. these questions. So, <laughs> right on. Um, flipping the coin for question number two, who's your favorite antagonist? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, um, I love I love this one probably more than the protagonist one, just because it not only is it it's not rare to find a good villain, but it's rare to find a, a good villain that you can kind of latch on to. And so it, a lot of them timed a lot of the answers tend to kind of overlap one another, but every so often we get like a real like oh yeah oh, okay yeah for sure. Hmm. That's, I think that's harder for me to answer. Um, I do really like the master in the original fallout. Um, voiced by David Warner, good voice helps a lot. Like, man, that goes a long way. Good voice, good writing. Yes. Um, his appearance is really crazy, which also is cool. Uh, he's a smart antagonist. Um, he has, you know, reasons well thought out from his perspective, reasons for why he's doing what he's doing, which I think is always important. Uh, yeah, I think it's really important to me with antagonists that um, I really, I don't, ag- I don't need to agree with why they're doing things, but I, I need to be able to say, yeah, I can see that if you're crazy, 
that that makes sense. <laughs> so, like, yeah, like that is that is internally consistent for you, a crazy person. Um, so, yeah, I really, I really like like the master has a cool total package, and then you know that fight with him, um, like where he's in the the mini gun, you know, he's in the overseer thing, and the mini guns are around him. Like that's a really cool, like the whole visual of that is really neat, and I thought it was uh, pulled off very well. Yeah, there's so many, especially with what they were working with back then. Uh, there are so many cool things that they managed to do with those Fallout games. So, oh yeah, yeah. Like, there's a lot of really awesome sprite art. Um, like a lot of the death animations and stuff like that were um, Brian. I'm pretty sure it's Brian Menzi who still works. He works at Obsidian, but uh, a lot of those death animations, like Brian, basically did them all frame by frame, or a lot of it frame by frame, like all the blood spatters and stuff. It's just each frame, like having little chunks of stuff or goo and stuff like that um really crazy and yeah a lot of the sprite animations turned out really amazing and the sound design i think contributed a ton to the feel of of the fallout setting and music mark morgan like great um yeah great stuff yeah no absolutely that's that's that is fantastic um okay question number three um is there any um uh trend kind of in video games today um that you don't think is uh is like as big as it should be, or, or something that you'd like to see kind of proliferate more across everything. Oh Christ! Um, let's see, a trend that I want to see more of. Um, probably a lot. Um, I always uh, one part of it, especially with RPGs, is I always like transparency and mechanics. I don't like under the hood stuff that people have to kind of. I don't really like this term theory craft, but more or less theory craft. Um, I like mechanics where players can look at it and they're like, okay, I understand how that works. I don't really like it when a mechanic shows up in an RPG and it's like, well, here's a number, but then there's a bunch of stuff happening underneath the hood that the player can't really, you can theorize about and like maybe have a huge form argument about, but it's not really clear. I think that makes it hard for the player to actually meaningfully interact with those systems. Um, in terms of storytelling, I think that, um, I don't know, just a, a bigger focus for me, it's like a bigger focus on, no matter what the genre is, I think a bigger focus on things that are more applicable to, thematically are more applicable to us and our lives. Like, I know that a lot of people use games as escape, which is good. Um, I feel like there can always also be a danger in that, is that it's sort of like a disconnection from the world. Um, in a negative sense. And I think that if the exploration of a story, especially one in which you're making choices that impact the world, I think if that story can tie into themes that are relevant to us, whether it's political or ethical or medical or whatever the, the, the issues are, I think it makes you consider your stances. It makes you think more in depth about like, why do I support this choice? Or why don't I support this? Why do I oppose this? Um, and I don't want to get overly dramatic about it, but I think that's in, it's important that you feel like you're thinking about things. Um, like we can we can all watch a story in a movie or read a book and have it like lay down some moral lesson for us. I think there's a very different feeling to being forced to make a choice in a game where they're saying, no, you're making the moral choice. You're making the ethical choice. And if that ties into something that you can think like, oh, this is kind of like, this is kind of like this in our world or in my life or like things going on today. I think that that can be much more powerful because it's engaging the player in a way that a movie that might be moralizing to them 
it's not as effective at doing. So I personally would like to see more of that in storytelling in this medium because it's what games do or can do very well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that uh, that uh, the the element of choice of being able to interact with the the world that you're playing in is really kind of unique to the medium, and it's something that I, when it's when it's taken advantage of, it is so cool. Yeah, and um, I think. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, I'm, no, keep going. Go. Uh, again, I didn't work on any of the story stuff in Alpha Protocol, so I can't take credit for it. But I think that AP did a really fantastic job of making the player make hard choices and showing cool reactivity to it, like really, really great stuff. And um, absolutely. And yeah, and I think I think Avalon and Travis Stout and all the all the designers and writers who worked on AP, uh, you know, I really think they did a great job. And so I'd like to really see more of that type of stuff. Uh, in our games and in games in general. Yeah, no, for uh, especially with Alpha Protocol. I mean, that was that was probably my favorite part of the that entire experience is uh, not only like the the choices that that uh, that he had to make, um, but the way they kind of came down to it and, and the way you could kind of approach them, um, uh, which was really neat. Yeah, cool stuff. More yeah, of that. No. <laughs> oh, totally. Um, so flipping the flipping the coin again uh, for the next question, is there any kind of trope that you'd like to see just go away for good? Um, maybe not a trope, but like zombies. It's Done with zombies? It's, 2000, <laughs> it's 2015, man. Like, are we really still Jeez. talking about zombies? Come on, like yeah, they're they're <laughs> they're cool and everything, but 2015, <laughs> it's it's okay. Like I'm not saying they all need to go away, but like, chill out a little. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh... Yeah, that's it, man. <laughs> No, no, no. That makes sense. I mean, you know, like, I, I, I totally see that. And if your first thought is zombies, maybe just kind of pull it back a little bit. Think, think just a couple seconds more before settling on zombies. Well, I think, I guess the thing is, like, I feel like we're getting to the point now where they're almost like not even the focus of the world where they exist. Um, like, in a lot of the, in a lot of the kind of like Walking Dead episodes, I'm not talking about the game necessarily, but like the TV series it's kind of like they're just like this nuisance in the background and it's, it's the human drama that's more important, which is oh, true. Right. Like the human drama is more important, but it kind of says like, well, what are these zombies doing here? <laughs> like, why is they this are, still they are, the thing? They are merely like a theme in a setting. Yeah. They're kind of like, Oh yeah. Like these guys are still around, aren't they? Huh? Well, sometimes for Carol, they're a tool. It's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the way it goes. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, excellent. Okay. So fifth question. All right. Uh, we're going to get a little bit loopy, a little bit out there. Um, you have been making games for a very long time. It's obviously what you want to do. In the back of your mind, is, is has there ever been a thought of a different profession that, that given no restrictions, you'd love to try? Making bicycle frames. That is probably the weirdest answer I've heard to this <laughs> yet. Why? And, I, and I, I'm so glad that it was something so specific. Because well, I often look at people who own, like, a fan store, and I'm like, how did you get into the business of just selling fans? 
So high bicycle frames. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I I got when I was a kid, I really liked riding um, riding bikes. I had a couple of bad accidents when I was young, and then I stopped riding bikes for quite a long time. And about maybe five or six years ago, I finally started getting back into it. And now I'm like crazy about it. And, um, but I also, I really love the, um, sort of the, I like looking at old, you know, old bicycle frames and just all the sort of craftsmanship that goes into them and all the crazy kind of little details and things you can, you can build into them. And actually a a month ago, I went up to Portland for two weeks specifically to take a class in building bicycle frames, steel bicycle frames. And, um, I have heard from many bicycle frame builders that it is not a career that you actually want to get into to make any money at all. (laughs) But, um, but, uh, I'm a game dev. I know, I know. Yeah. But I, I, but I love it. And it's, um, it's fun to do. My dad is a sculptor and, um, my, one of my grandfathers was a machinist. And so the sort of like working with metals and fire and stuff like that is kind of, uh, something my family has done. And so it's, uh, I wouldn't say it has always been an interest of mine, but it's been, it's something I was exposed to at a young age. And so being able to actually, you know, take a bunch of steel tubes and, you know, work it all out and files and a torch and stuff, and then wind up with this bicycle frame is, uh, a pretty, pretty cool feeling. And so it's something I at least want to do as a hobby, continue to do in the future. I don't know if I would ever do it professionally, but, uh, I don't know. It's it sure is a cool hobby. That's that is positively one of the most unique answers we've gotten, and I absolutely thank you for sharing that. Sweet, that great, <laughs> yes, totally. Um, uh, next question: um, If you got the chance um, to play any game again for the first time, what would it be? First time, um. Probably, probably the original Fallout, or Hitman Blood Money. Hmm. Okay, I have played probably over five hundred hours of Hitman Blood Money. Wow! Because there's a lot of ways to do levels, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the AI is really consistent. It's very, very consistent. And it reacts to tons of things in very predictable ways. And so any level, I, I love playing it over and over again and just screwing with AI. Um, and it might seem dumb. Like some people look at it and they're like, oh, the AI is so dumb. It's like, that's not the point. The point is I'm smart. <laughs> the AI is dumb, but I can, because I'm super smarty, I can take advantage of it and the gameplay is fun uh, because of it. And because it's so predictable and reliable, there's all these crazy things you can do. And every once in a while, I find some new thing or way of playing a level that I've never done before. Um, But I have played it for 500 hours. And so being able to come back into that and and learn about all that new, all the new and crazy ways that I could do things, um, that'd be cool. Nice. That's excellent. Uh, Final question. Um, at the end of our lives, when we come to the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom, and Toad is there to greet us with the Book of Our Deeds, what would you like him to say to you before he lets you inside? Oh, jeez. Not too bad, man. 
<laughs> Fair answer. Yeah. Like, no, no, don't oversell it. Yep. Don't, you know, tell me I've done anything shitty. <laughs> Just like, you know, like, not too bad. Like, you didn't, you know, you didn't mangle anything. Overall, pretty good. That's that's what I want to hear. Handshake pat on the back. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> you did all right. Fantastic. That's, that's a good That's one. great. Well, thank you very much. That is the end of our... Um, um, short questionnaire. Um, unfortunately, we have uh, no prizes to give you, uh, but our undue respect, <laughs> cool. uh, or actually perfectly due respect. Um, Jonathan, take us home. Well, Josh, I just want to thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us about Pillars of Eternity. If you could send us out by letting our listeners know where they can go to find out more about the game and what's upcoming. So you can learn more about Pillars of Eternity at eternity.obsidian.net. Also, coming soon, meaning this winter, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, Pillars of Eternity, The White March, Part 2, Part 1 is already out, and a bunch of cool short stories that you can find on our website. And Lords of the Eastern Reach card game. When's it coming? I don't know. We already went over that. (laughs) We did. Well, thank you so much again, and uh, good luck as you guys continue uh, working on Part 2, and uh, just, you know, Future projects. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great time.